Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 96 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, as always, to break down what we saw during week 12 of the college football season and what to watch for this upcoming weekend. Tony, how's life? It's okay. It's kind of a, a bummer after we saw the injury to Tua la- uh, last Saturday, and that's coming off what was one of the best college football Saturdays in a long, long time. Uh, so that obviously is going to be a talking point moving forward, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, obviously, no changes in the national championship rankings. Uh, kind of a blase uh, week on, on the college schedule, but uh, we'll get into some good prospect matchups. Yeah, I mean, obviously that Tua news is just a backbreaker, not just uh, obviously for Alabama this season, but for Tua moving forward, you know, the potential number one pick entering the 2020 draft now just clouds of concern and uncertainty surrounding him. Obviously a hip injury is not, you know, your cookie cutter torn ACL where we have standard recoveries and we've seen a lot of people come back from it. The last time a star football player had a hip injury, it was Bo Jackson. And while he played on it and didn't get surgery right away and made it worse as a result, you know, it's not a great harbinger for things to come for Mr. Tagovailoa. And Marvin Jones, the uh, former first-round pick of the New York Jets, if memory serves me right, had, had a similar sort of injury uh, his rookie season uh, with the Jets in 1993, rebounded from it well. Listen, the bottom line is this. I know everyone wants answers as of yesterday. We're not going to know it for a long time uh, because regardless of what uh, two his doctors say and the word Alabama, until NFL doctors and the medical teams – or the, the medical examiners from NFL teams really get to look at that uh, hip and that injury, you're never going to know. And even then, it's going to be an array of opinions because as we've seen with the Montez Sweats, the Jeffrey Simmons, opinions on uh, injuries and things like that can be all over the board in the NFL. Now, moving along from the Tua News, we'll start the show as we usually do with a look back at last weekend's games. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, Tony and I may not know much about modern dating, being the old married men that we are, Tony more so than me, of course, but for everybody out there in the dating world, I'm sure it can get pretty frustrating trying to hit that first note, that first communication online with someone that you're interested in. Kind of harsh, Chris. Don't forget, I was was single for 37 years, uh, much longer than you. But if I was single, how would I go about to break the ice and stand out without looking stupid, which is often a natural occurrence for me? For that, there's a new app out there that's called Charm. It actually helps men communicate better. Charm uses both your friends and professionals to give you advice tailored to your particular match. For example, the most common opening lines are, hey, and you're beautiful. Now imagine if you're a woman on the receiving end of that. Do you really want to hear you're beautiful for the 1,000th or 10,000th time? I wouldn't mind it. But anyway, so guys, you got to get charmed immediately. It'll make your dating life so much easier. Girls are looking for a reason to skip you, as Chris can attest to. The people that charm the professionals who have come up with a way for you to be classy, unique, sophisticated, and interesting. Even though I'm married, I'm going to try this out. And that's how you're going to get dates. Hurry up and visit www.charmed.app to get charmed. Your future matches will thank you. 
Ooh, you got me back there on, on that dig. You better hope uh, that your wife doesn't listen to this podcast or I don't just send it to her right now to get back at you. Uh, well, hey, listen, <laughs> such is life, right? <laughs> it's been a long time. Maybe she'll forgive you. There you go. All right. So for our first review here, we'll hit up the battle for the Paul Bunyan Trophy between Michigan State and Michigan, which honestly, this one was a truly one-sided game. 44-10 in favor of the Wolverines. The matchup of intrigue for us was the Michigan interior offensive line against the Michigan State defensive tackles. The Michigan run game in this one never really got going. Just 83 yards on the ground, their lowest output in a long time. And Shea Patterson actually went off in the passing game despite being sacked four times by the Spartans. One of those sacks came from Raquan Williams, a guy we discussed in the preview of this game last week. He had his moments in this game, did struggle to get movement or shed blocks when he was faced up against center Cesar Ruiz and right guard Michael Owenwenu, who's consistently double teamed, did occasionally break through though, had a tackle for loss, or it actually might have been a no gain, uh, tripped up one of the Michigan running backs as they tried to bounce outside. Nazir Jones, on the other hand, was invisible, just one tackle on limited snaps. Did this performance just reinforce any previously held notions that you had, Tony? A lot of them, and there were some new ones. I mean, as we said all along, the better the Michigan offensive line plays, the more dominant they've been. They struggled early in the season. They're getting in their groove. It's going to be a good matchup when they finally meet Ohio State. Ben Bredesen, a senior bowl invite, a guy who's playing better and better, a guy who was a riser this week in my column at uh, Pro Football Network, really someone who came into the season with late-round grades by scouts. He's played so well, they're now thinking he could hop into the second day of the draft. Michael Owenyu, uh, who's going to be at the Shrine game, uh, some uh, somebody who I absolutely loved coming into the season. I mean, I had him graded as a last-day pick. Scouts thought he was a street-free agent. The fact that he's getting a Shrine Bowl invite or he's going to be at the Shrine game tells you he has improved his game. Someone who tips the scales at in excess of 350 pounds, but you know he moves like a 280-pound lineman. He's basically your dancing bear. Cesar Ruiz, who we've talked about a number of times, a lot of scouts think he could be the first center off the board. I don't think so. I still have Tyler Biadez as number one, but he's getting some first-round mention. So all those three guys were dominant, and, and there were a couple of long drives where uh, those three guys just pushed the Michigan State uh, defensive line down the field. You talked about Naquan Jones. I mean, coming into this game, he had like 10 tackles for the season. Uh, graded as a fourth-round or a potential fourth-round pick by scouts who grade underclassmen. He's basically been passed on the depth char chart by Mike Panasiewiak, the senior who was not graded by scouts coming into the year, but is now going to get priority free agent looks. And really the overriding theme for me the past couple of weeks is what Joe Bocci means to this Michigan State uh, defense. Because since he was suspended for the year after testing positive for uh, PEDS for performance-enhancing drugs, I mean – the Michigan State offense has struggled all year, but when Bocce was out, really the uh, the defense went right down the crapper. So you see what that guy means to the defense. Absolutely, and they've really kind of fallen off since that point. I think I called him Nazir Jones, so my apologies there uh, on the uh, initial part of this. I'm going to flip sides of the ball here real quickly because I want to mention one guy on the offensive side of the ball for Michigan State. They only scored 10 points, but Cody White looked pretty good in this game. Daryl Stewart, the guy we've discussed here, did not play, so every bit of Michigan's defensive attention was on Cody White, and he played pretty well. He's 6'3", does a good job using his length to his advantage, reaches behind him, reaches in front of him over his head to snatch passes. He's also really tough to bring down with the ball in his hands. He's strong and elusive as a runner after the catch, kind of similar to his teammate Stewart, and we saw it a little bit more with White this week with Stewart on the sidelines. 
against a, a decent uh, secondary that Michigan has. They've got some good players. They've got some uh, terrific next-level prospects. And a lot of people like White. A lot of people like White more than uh, Stewart. I don't because I think Stewart can do a little bit more, line him up on the flanks, in the slot, use him as a return specialist. White's got good size. He's got dependable hands. Don't know if he's the fastest guy in the world, but there are a lot of scouts out there who like White as a early day three pick and someone who projects as a number four at the next level. Now, another battle in the trenches took place in Missouri this past weekend. Florida's Jonathan Grenard against Missouri left tackle Yasir Durant. And just to sum it up, Grenard had a day. Six tackles, five of them for loss, two sacks. Set the tone on the first play of the game, at least defensively for the Gators. Used a quick inside move to beat Durant, who was a bit slow-footed. Overall, though, in this game, Durant held his own against Grenard, despite the numbers. Has a little issues bending at the waist. Slits to the edge relatively well, though, to kind of neutralize the speed of Grenard when he could. But where Grenard really dominated was when he went up against right tackle Larry Borough. He saw a lot of each guy, maybe 50-50, 55-45, one way or the other. But most of his production did come against Borough. Regardless, looking at Grenard's game, he is just so fast. Shot out of a cannon out of his stance. Time snaps extremely well, which is kind of unfair when you combine that with his speed. He can turn that speed into power, plays with good discipline and a good motor. Got turned around a few times, though, either attempting spin moves or just trying to get by Durant. When he turns his back to the blocker, it's game over for Grenard. He is a little bit on the small side, so he can be engulfed by a larger guy like Durant. But those blockers have to keep him in front first, and that's really not an easy task. Yeah, and Durant is another guy who's, uh, you know, I mentioned it, and, and when you from uh, Michigan, Durant's another guy who's a big dancing bear, 330-plus pounds, moves exceptionally well. Uh, plays left tackle. A lot of people feel he's going to be moved over to right tackle to the next level. As you said, he bends at the waist. He's got to improve his blocking balance. That should come in time. And he really has to attend to the details of the offensive tackle position. There are some people who don't like his character. I don't hear, hear that that's widespread. He's got a great amount of upside. Uh, and I think he's going to be a last day pick that if coached properly and developed, could start at the next level. As far as Grenard's concerned, I mean, the guy's playing like a first-round selection, and I'm, I have a mock draft of Pro Football Network that's going to be released soon, and I have Grenard going late in round one. I think his final draft positioning will be determined by how he works out, and just as long as he doesn't pull a, a Ja'Kai Polite, uh, as we saw what happened with Ja'Kai Polite last year, uh, or actually, I should say, not last year, earlier this year, uh, once he got to the combine and how things fell apart, uh, Grenard's going to go very early. The one thing I like uh, about Grenard is, Occasionally, they stand them up over tackle, and he shows ability standing up over tackle. And that's one thing that, you know, is not always a given. It's not always a natural for someone like a Ja'Kai Polite who came out of a three-point stance exclusively out of Florida. All of a sudden, you've got to stand up and rush the passer. It's not an easy adjustment. It's not an automatic. Grenard has shown the ability to stand up over tackle. So I think that versatility is really going to appeal to teams. In addition, I mean, I mentioned that he went up against both of these guys equally. I mean, he's able to do things on both sides of the line of scrimmage. He's able to get around each edge. He's able to get inside each way. And the amount of moves that he has in his toolbox is astounding to be able to do that and make that level of impact playing both sides of the field. Especially when teams know what he can do and what he's going to do and what he's capable of doing, why he's out there. So he was a new guy at the beginning of the season after sitting out almost all of last year with the injury at Louisville, then transferring over. But by now, you know, you got to know what Grenard's going to do and what he's capable of, and they still can't stop him. 
And even with Jabari Zuniga out, they're still unable to focus on him and completely take him out of the game when his guy on the other side, who's, who's a really good NFL prospect in his own right, isn't even on the field. Really good edge rusher. There are some concerns or questions about his 40 time. You know, you, you want to see a guy like Grenard, if he's going to get into the first round, he's got to run in the mid four sevens. He's got to have a good 10 time. If he runs in the four eights, he's going to be pushed down a little bit, but still you like the production. You like the consistency of his production. I mean, it's happening every week as opposed to spotty production. Now, our last game between TCU and Texas Tech lost a little bit of luster before kickoff. TJ Vasher did not end up playing, something we mentioned was a possibility on last week's show. Obviously, TCU offensive tackle Lucas Niang was already out for the season. Cornerback Jeff Gladney, who we wanted to watch against Vasher after we saw him win the battle against Denzel Mims of Baylor the prior week, actually got ejected for targeting in the second minute of the second half. Before the ejection, though, Gladney did do a nice job on R.J. Turner, Turner did score a long touchdown. The play after Gladney was disqualified from the game against backup Keon Stewart. Had one earlier, too, on a busted coverage, but that wasn't on Gladney. It was two other teammates miscommunicating on the back end. Gladney did whiff on a sack on a blitz off the slot. That play turned into a touchdown pass. Did allow a big play early to Dalton Rigdon out of the slot when he kind of froze on a play action, a fake, and kept his eyes in the backfield a bit too long. I do wish we got to see more of Gladney in this game. Obviously, we wish we got to see him against Vasher, but Tony, what'd you take away from his first half in this game as a whole? You know, I'm not as high on Gladney as a lot of scouts are, but there are a lot of people in the league who like him and think he's going to be a second-day pick. I mean, really, the only bad game he had this year was against Colin Johnson of Texas, when Johnson had seven receptions, 101 yards, one of his best performances of the year. I think he was a little bit better against Kansas State, and he was giving up four to six inches against Johnson, but he's a tough, feisty guy. He's got solid ball skills. I don't know that he's a a true corner. Maybe he's a a guy who's better off in the slot. I will say one thing, though. TCU gave up 323 yards of passing to Texas Tech, and Texas Tech did not have its best receiver. And I think that really shows how the uh, Horned Frogs defense really missed Ben Benagu and LJ Collier, who are now playing in the NFL. They're not having much of an impact. Collier, the late first-round pick uh, to the Seattle Seahawks. Benagu, mid-second-round choice to the uh, Indianapolis Colts. They're not having the impact that teams had hoped, but you can tell how much TCU misses those two guys up front. Yeah, and the one thing when you look at guys in the secondary, even the best corners, they can't cover for more than five seconds, six seconds. It's a very hard thing to do to stay with somebody through multiple cuts. If you're not getting pressure on the quarterback, which is what Benagu and Collier did provide last season, if you're not able to do that, it's really hard for any secondary, no matter how talented, no matter how good they are, to stay with receivers for that long and make sure that you're able to stop the pass especially on the college level where a little goes a long way. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, you get more mismatches between athleticism on the college level than you do on the NFL level, where the NFL, most of the guys are as athletic as their opponents, or, you know, there's not much of a spread. On the college level, there's usually a huge spread. Or you got a situation where you got a receiver like Colin Johnson, who's got four inches on Gladney, and that really goes a long way on the college level. Now, changing gears quickly as Senior Bowl invites continue to roll in, and naturally, several players that we've mentioned often on this podcast will be there. You have your well-known guys like wide receivers Michael Pittman Jr., Chase Claypool, Brandon Ayuk, the Utah guys, Zach Moss, Jalen Johnson, Lecky Fotu, lesser-known guys that are going to be there that we've discussed as well, UConn tackle Matt Hurt, 
UNC defensive tackle Jason Strobridge, who's actually going to be reportedly used off the edge in Mobile rather than playing inside like he has for the Tar Heels. Of the names that you've seen, Tony, who excites you most and who are you surprised has yet to be invited or accept their invite? Yeah, well, obviously, you always want to see some small school guys there. There are some small school offensive linemen. Really looking forward to seeing some of the small school safeties. Jeremy Chin of Southern Illinois, Kyle Duger of Lenore Rhyme. Everyone's been in love with Kyle Duger. He's a six-year senior. He looks the part. You know, he plays explosive, violent football, but he also plays instinctive football, also plays, you know, within the system. So it's going to be fun to watch those two guys, especially when these small school safeties are matched up against the receivers in the one-on-one drills. You know, I'm glad to see Javon Kinlaw is going to be at the game or has right now accepted the invitation because right now I think he's the highest rated player in that game. He's a guy who I is moving up draft boards. I think he's going to be a top 12 pick when all is said and done. Career is heading in the right way. Has dropped weight, has been dominant at times this year, very athletic. And it's good to see that Kinlaw has already said, yes, I'm going to the senior bowl tells you something about him. Happy to see our guy Colton McKivitz uh, from West Virginia is going to be there. Again, it'll be interesting to see how he does in those one-on-one matchups, especially when he's going up against those speed rushers. I'm overjoyed to see Josiah DeGura, the tight end from Cincinnati, get an invitation. It's not a good tight end class. DeGura was a guy who was graded as a street free agent by scouts coming into the season. But if you read my preview on uh, Cincinnati in the summer, in June, I said he was a guy to watch. I said, you know, he's not spectacular in any one aspect, but he's a solid pass catcher who does a good job when he's blocking. And I could see him as a productive number three tight end uh, at the next level. He was, uh, I believe, a week one riser uh, for me in my Roger Slider column at Pro Football Network. I'm just very happy to see it because I think he was a guy who flew under the radar and really was dismissed when he shouldn't have been. Uh, I'm surprised that Charlie, uh, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to uh, butcher his name, uh, uh, Tom Apoa, uh, the tight end from Portland State, has not been invited as of yet, where Adam Troutman has been invited, the, the tight end from Dayton. Tom Apoa was much highly regarded, had a higher grade coming into the season uh, than Troutman did. He's more of a down-the-field, stretch-the-field type of tight end. Hopefully we'll see him there. I haven't seen his name invited yet. He's also not going to the uh, Shrine game. So I'm sure eventually, uh, uh, you know, if he's invited, hopefully he shows up. Another guy who's not on a list who's very surprising to me in omission would be Kalike Hudson of Michigan. Here's a guy who came into the season with third-round grades. He's playing good football this year. Uh, so he plays at a Viper position at Michigan, which is sort of a hybrid safety linebacker, so, sort of a smaller linebacker who plays in space and up in the box. I, I mean, the thing with Hudson is where is he going to play at the next level? I wrote about this in a piece in the Roger Slider piece of Pro Football Network. Is he a safety? Is he a small linebacker, small run and chase linebacker? I, I think the Senior Bowl is a great place to showcase what he can do and what he maybe he can't do at the next level. Teams are concerned that they say he can't cover. I don't know that he's really been asked to cover all that much. Hudson's been highly regarded for the longest time in the scouting community. I know that some teams are down on him. I, I'm surprised when you look at the number of guys from Michigan who have already been invited and accepted invitation. I think there's three or four of them already. Bredson, our, our guy, uh, Josh Uche, there's a couple other guys. I'm surprised that Hudson has not been invited yet. Hopefully uh, he'll get on that list and we'll see him in Mobile in uh, January. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Hudson because a guy like that is kind of perfect for the senior bowl because you have NFL coaching staffs there that can take a look at him, can put him in different roles. He can work with the linebackers. He can work with the safeties. He can do one-on-ones against the receivers. He can do linebacker drills against the run. Yes, he hasn't been asked to cover a ton at Michigan, but just because a player isn't asked to do something doesn't mean he can't do it. As we've learned so many times year after year in the NFL, some guys just play their role at the college level. Kaliki Hudson is one of those guys, and he plays it really well. He works through the trash. I mean, for a small guy, he gets where he needs to go. He doesn't get blocked out of plays. He doesn't get physically dominated. And it would have been really nice to see him at the Senior Bowl to watch him up close and personal and see, can this guy cover? And if he can, that is a weapon on defense, whether you view him as a linebacker, whether you view him as a safety, even if he's a sub-package player who sees 30 to 35 snaps a game, he can still make a big impact. And I think it's a missed opportunity for both him and the senior bowl here. And we may still see him. We don't know. So uh, we got to be fair about, we may still see him. But the thing about it is, is I agree with everything you said. Plus you have to factor in. I mean, he was highly considered coming into the season. Uh, He was a guy who got a third round grade, early fourth round grade from scouts. And he's a guy who's been highly considered really throughout his Michigan career. Uh, A lot of scouts loved him as a sophomore. Uh, They talked about him in the same breath, or I should say just a step below Rashawn Gary, did not have a good junior season, did the right thing, went back for a senior year, and he's playing good football this year. So, you know, this is someone who was well-known and, for the most part, well-liked in the scouting community. Again, I mean, there's still time. I think I was just surprised by the amount of guys from from Michigan that, that have already accepted invitations. And from what I was told, Hudson has yet to be extended an invitation. Now, we'll get to our Week 13 previews in just a minute here. But before we do, please support the Draft Analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. If you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch. Now, Caleb Farley is a guy we've discussed several times on this podcast. The Virginia Tech cornerback has had two challenging matchups in the past five games, one against Rhode Island back on October 12th and Wake Forest two weeks ago, both of which we discussed on the show. We're going to talk about him again because this week the Hokies host Pitt. The Panthers have two talented wide receiver prospects in Taysir Mack and Maurice French. Both guys make their living in the short and intermediate field. When Farley covers French, he might have trouble staying with the quicker, smaller receiver in French. I am very interested, though, to watch him go up against Mac because Farley is a physical guy. If he's unrefined a bit in his game, as we've discussed, Mac is a guy who's up and down in contested situations, doesn't always handle physicality as you might hope a player of his height, Mike, but he's reliable and experienced, whereas Farley, on the other hand, is a bit young and can play a little bit wild at times. So that matchup seems like one that could go either way in favor of one of the players. I think Farley has shown a lot of improvement this season. I mean, from where he was at the beginning of the year, then against Rhode Island and, and later on in the year uh, against, uh, against Wake Forest, I, I think he's headed in the right direction. I agree with you. I mean, the pit receivers, they're quicker, they're, they're explosive, they're, they're good route runners. So Farley's got to show some discipline here. Um, hopefully we see some consistency from him. He doesn't overplay. He doesn't overreact, doesn't get called for any penalties, but he's got good size. He's flashed ball skills and he's playing, uh, he's showing them on a more consistent basis. Definitely think that, uh, you know, he's heading the right direction. This is an important game for both teams. Now head to the big 10 where Wisconsin should roll over Purdue. I think it's a 25 point spread right now at camp Randall stadium. 
But there is a matchup here to keep an eye on, even if the game isn't going to be a barn burner. And that's Boilermakers tight end Bryson Hopkins, who leads all Big Ten tight ends in receiving and recently accepted his invite to Mobile for the Senior Bowl. Hopkins will get a tough matchup against a pair of potential NFL linebackers in Zach Vaughn and Chris Orr. Both guys are complete players who can play the run. They can rush the passer. If you look at their pass rushing stats, they are very impressive. They can also cover. So this should be a good challenge. And the final one for Hopkins before the Senior Bowl, since Purdue is not going to make a bowl game and only gets to face Indiana in their final game of the season. Yeah, they're, they're not having a good year. And, you know, Hopkins was a guy who was highly rated coming into the season, even though he didn't start last year. He was not the starter at Purdue in 2018. Kind of got off to a slow start. Then all of a sudden against Maryland, he had 10 receptions for 140 yards. And he's been consistently productive. Had eight receptions for 97 yards um, against uh, Nebraska. He's only found the end zone three times. But he's known as a really good athlete who's got to learn to become a football player. He's got to learn to become a tight end in all facets of the game, be a consistent pass catcher as well as block. Now, the thing with going up against the Wisconsin linebackers is Chris Orr is your typical Wisconsin Badger linebacker. He's tough. He's heady. He's instinctive. But he's not the greatest athlete in the world. Bourne is an excellent athlete. Bourne is fast. Bourne covers a lot of area on the field. The problem with Bourne is, and I wrote about this about a week or so ago, is actually I think it was this past Monday in my Rogers column, is that Bourne is used as a 3-4 outside linebacker in the Badger system, which is out of position for him. He's more of your traditional 4-3 outside linebacker that you would place over Bryson Hopkins. So, you know, the times that Bourne does cover Hopkins, you got to key on because it's not going to happen throughout the game because they primarily use Bourne up the field or up at the line of scrimmage and send him up the field, which I don't think is his best position. He's more of your traditional 4-3 weak side linebacker. But still, when, it, when it's Hopkins against Bourne, it's strength against strength. They're both very good athletes. They both cover a lot of area on the field. When it's Hopkins against Orr, it's a mismatch in Hopkins' favor as far as athleticism is concerned. But when it comes to overall football instincts and really a polished game, Chris Orr has the advantage there. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned that Bond is kind of out of position because even playing a position that's really not his, he is extremely productive. You see him all over the field. He's a guy, as you mentioned, he flies around. Just an excellent player overall. And if he can do that as a guy who's not playing his best position – Imagine what he's going to be able to do if he's placed in the right position and in the right system at the NFL level. Really played well last week. I, the problem with him is he's just a slightly undersized. So when you're using him as a 3-4 outside linebacker, when an opposing uh, offensive tackle or even a tight end gets their hands on him, he struggles getting off, off the blocks. But he's athletic. He can bend off the edge. He's got an excellent burst of speed, covers a lot of area on the field. Again, you know, when Bond goes up against Bryson Hopkins, it's going to be a very good matchup to watch. Now, for our last preview, we have a battle between two former transfers, former UNC cornerback K.J. Sales, who's now at South Florida. The Bulls host Memphis, who have big play threat Antonio Gibson at wide receiver. It's his second year with the Tigers after he transferred from junior college. Gibson is 6'3", 221 pounds, averaging almost 25 yards per reception this year on 23 catches, has seven touchdowns, and has really done a nice job putting himself on the draft radar with an impressive senior season. Sales, on the other hand, also having a very good year, his second year as a starter, and definitely his best year in college. Two interceptions, the first two of his career, actually. Five pass breakups and 37 tackles. But in this matchup, he gives up four to five inches to Gibson. He's also giving up almost 50 pounds. Sales is kind of a smaller guy, 5'10", 5'11", 175 pounds. We'll see how often they end up matching up against each other in this game. But Tony, 
what are you looking for from each player here with an eye towards their draft stock? Yeah, let's start with Gibson. And you're you're right on the money. I mean, Gibson wasn't even on scouting radar before the season began. He wasn't rated. He wasn't graded. He wasn't even named. And now, because of what he's doing at Memphis, which has one of the most explosive offenses in the nation, he's basically a guy that is going to get looks, going to get serious looks. Don't think we'll see him at the Shrine game. He could end up at the NFLPA game. He could end up at the Hula Bowl. Uh, now that they're resurrecting that game because he, he deserves to be in a postseason game. And then you're going to have to take a uh, close watch uh, during pro day. Don't think he gets a combine invite, but, but during pro day, you know, is he the listed six foot three, 221 pounds, or is he six two, 215 pounds? And how fast does he run? Because with that high uh, yards per catch, uh, average that he has you want to see if it's the speed or if it's the system but the fact is this he's headed in the right direction he was a guy that no one knew about no one talked about coming into the season and he's really uh, elevated his game kj sales has been kind of spotty i remember watching sales at north carolina and he was a guy that i put on my radar because he showed flashes but there wasn't a lot of consistency i think he's played a little bit better this year i think he's basically found his groove uh and again it's going to be a, a terrific matchup because like you said, he is basically at a disadvantage as far as height and size is concerned, but he's got some speed. He's got some quickness. He should be able to stay with uh, Gibson out of breaks and beat him to the ball. Um, so it's going to be a good challenge for both of these guys. And that's it for the 96th episode of the Draft Analysts presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with another episode to go over everything you need to know for the 2020 NFL Draft, as calendars will soon flip to December, which means draft season is right around the corner, if it's not already here, since we're talking about things like Senior Bowl invites and the Shrine Game as well. On behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi. Good night. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.